and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I wonder if Dayton was a smatchet as a child. A smatchet? That sounds bad. A nasty little kid. I don't remember if they said he was mean. They didn't really say too much about him in childhood. Yeah, like they didn't. It doesn't seem like they really interviewed very many of his friends. It was more like some of the in-laws would mm-hmm. say that he would get a lot of abuse from the dad. Right. I don't think he had very many friends because they moved around so uh, much. That's true. Everything. Yeah. So with that, we are back with Dayton Leroy Rogers, part three, our final part of this series. But I have a question first, and I don't think I asked this one before, but if I did, let me know. Courtney, what's your favorite either board or or other type of game to play on family game night? Ooh. I don't know if you've asked this one or not. But I would say I'm kind of a nerd. Mm-hmm. So I really like Scrabble. Okay. And it's kind of like you're a basic card games. Like I play a lot of Uno and Skippo. Not so much Skippo. Oh, I love Skippo. What's the other one? Phase 10. Right. Isn't that like kind of in that? Uno, it phase is. Phase 10, yeah. Skippo. Mm-hmm. I, I remembered how to. I, no, I used to play that, but I'd have to have a refresher on how. But I do like Uno. Uno's a classic. It is. Yeah. It's a good one. How about you? Uh, I love Taboo. Oh, that's a good one. I get very excited about it. So um, <laughs> it gets pretty competitive mm-hmm. when I play it with. Um, few of my friends and my family I think I played it with you and people before and it was exciting it's fun I mean Mm -hmm. it's it's tough because there's a lot of words you can't use and you can't use any part of those words so you know it makes it it's tougher than like we'll watch the hundred thousand dollar pyramid that's replaying right now on tv Mm -hmm. and I'm like they gotta use their arms and gesture and do whatever and point to things I was like that is easy can't do that in taboo that's right. I mean, that's practically charades. Right. Totally. So, um, but yeah. So if we said that question before, sorry. We're <laughs> worth retelling you. Maybe our answers have changed. Since, Could be. Since we're coming up on almost two years doing this in a few months. Really? Yeah. Wow. 21. Yeah, we started in 12 of 21. Dang. I know. Who'd have thunk we'd like keep going I know. I never stick with hobbies this long. It's not a hobby. It's a way of life. Ah, got it. That must be it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. That must be it. Yeah, maybe. Um, So I sent you a couple of these episodes, but I just wanted to let you listeners know that like um, there's been a couple. uh, What is that? What was it called? The Sarah... uh, Send it to me the, um, oh my gosh, this is... The I Survived? The I Survived podcast. (laughs) Yes. There are a few cases where they're interviewing the victims of some of the killers that we've gone over. So one was Anthony Sowell. One of those victims had a podcast episode. And then one was um, Gary Heidnick had um, a victim survivor I don't remember if I went over this before. I'm a little spacey today. But anyhow, it's it's really interesting to hear those victim survivor tales, especially when we know the story more so from the serial killer side than the victim side as as what, you know, what Courtney and I 
tend to focus in on. Yeah. So, so if that's something that interests you, check it out. I survived. This, I was listening to that the first season, and then they took a break. Um, yeah, there was a long break. There was a long break, so I didn't know they even had new ones. But it even before we started this podcast, I think I listened to that, and it was pretty interesting hearing like the victim's tales. Some crazy shit happens to people that survive. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And the podcast actually came after the show, right. I Survived. Yeah. Um, which is... Does the same thing. It talks to the like the, yeah. the story from the victim's perspective. I wouldn't be surprised if like the podcast was almost just the only like the audio. I think it is. Yeah, it sounds kind of like it. But anyways, um, Courtney, will you give us a recap of Dayton? Yes. So over the last two weeks, we have learned that Dayton grew up in a very conservative and abusive household. He started having violent sexual fantasies as a teen and started acting on these as a young adult. He was in and out of psychiatric hospitals and jail based on charges of rape, assault, and attempted murder. And then he got married and seemed to live a fairly quiet life until 1987 when he was arrested after murdering a sex worker in a public parking lot. Right. In front of a bunch of witnesses. So Dayton is currently in jail because of all that transpired with Jennifer Smith. During this time, in August of 87, a man man was hunting in the Malala Forest when he smelled a very offensive odor. He recognized the odor as that of decaying flesh, but he assumed since it was hunting season, it was just some deer that had been killed, maybe not found, and now it was rotting. He followed the smell to the source and saw a lump covered in ferns. And when he moved the ferns back with his foot, he did not see a deer carcass, but he saw a human leg. So, of course, the man freaked out and he went and called the police. And they had to navigate a lot of wilderness to get to the body. So it was pretty deep into the Malala forest. The medical examiner also went to the location where the body was and noted it was nearly mummified and that the sex could not be determined at that time. The body was naked, however, and it was in a prone position, and one of the feet was missing. So I just Googled how long carcasses smell because of this um, body was almost mummified. I just didn't think it would stink, but I guess uh, they can smell for months until they are completely dried out. So near the body, they found a little bottle of vodka, and I want to say it was Smirnoff vodka that Dayton liked. The police felt that because the body was nude, they were for sure dealing with a homicide. So not even five minutes after finishing documenting the findings of this body, another body was found. This body was in the fetal position and both of its feet were missing. The body was also nude and decomposed. With this body, they were not sure if animals had eaten the foot or if a human had done it. Like not eaten the foot, but you know, removed the foot. But after finding the second body with two missing feet, they were sure that it was due to a sick-ass human being. Courtney, you know what they found a few hours later? I'm going to guess more bodies. Yes, a third body in the same area. This one was found resting against a tree. It was also nude and it smelled very bad. This one must have been more recent because they could see a, quote, gaping cut or incision that extended from the area of the groin upward to the sternum. So at this point, the police decided to bring in some dogs. And 15 minutes later, after bringing in the dogs, a German shepherd named Colt found body number four. And this one was nearly skeleton-like, so it was probably the oldest. Another body was found about 50 yards from body number four. And this was uh, when the first day search ended. 
At this point, there was talk that perhaps the Green River Killer ventured south and was dumping bodies in the Malala Forest. Courtney? So it is common for serial killers to have a special dumping ground or place where they put the bodies of their victims. And this allows them to revisit the victims, either for additional abuse or to relive their crimes. So Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, left most of the bodies of his victims in the woods surrounding the Green River. And I can see how investigators could think these crimes were his because this was, you know, in the height of Ridgway's killing period. However, this was far from his hunting ground and he didn't leave his victims so close together or remove their feet. Yeah, that was a telltale sign. Um, and again, the book that we're using is Bloodlust, Portrait of a Serial Sex Killer by Gary, Gary C. King. So one of the detectives who had been working on Dayton's case was brought to the scene, and he saw the mini vodka bottles. He told the cops to look out for those and collect them, and he was informed that they were all over the place, and that really clicked for the detective. Dayton had had miniature Smirnoff bottles at his place of business. Dayton may be the one who had done this. Dayton, who was currently in custody. Oh, sorry, my computer went black. <laughs> um, so as the police were discussing the situation, they smelled the telltale odor of rotting flesh again, and they soon found body number six. And after that, they followed an animal trail to body number seven. So Courtney, can you imagine you're starting the day thinking you're investigating one lone body, and then within just a few days, seven bodies are discovered all in close proximity. I imagine that if I were a police detective, I would probably be experiencing a mixture of feelings. On the one hand, realizing that there may be a serial killer hunting in my area would probably be terrifying. Um, and on the other hand, as an investigator, working on a serial killer case is potentially a huge boost for my career. I always thought it was interesting how they say the serial killers hunt their hunting grounds. I mean, it, it makes sense, but it's still, I don't know, weird to me. But the police now had to figure out who all these bodies were. Autopsies were conducted and eventually all were identified, although one was not identified until the year 2013. So what, 20, 25 years later? The victims were 23-year-old Lisa Marie Mock, 26-year-old Maureen Ann Hodges, 35-year-old Christine Lotus Adams, 20-year-old Cynthia DeVore, 26-year-old Nondance Noni Cervantes and 16 year old Riatha Giles that's per Wikipedia I'm not sure if I said Riatha Riatha whatever I'm not sure if I said, said their name right sorry the autopsies pointed to the victims having been alive when they were mutilated several had missing feet and some had been eviscerated they may have died of shock from these injuries so they were really trying to um put across that most likely these these women were their feet were removed while they were alive their intestines were removed while they were alive all of this stuff was happening while they're alive and not after the fact so if Dayton is cutting off limbs and cutting women from pelvis to sternum what kind of monster are we dealing with can you think of another killer that tortured their victims this way so if Dayton was torturing his victims this way it leads more credence to his status as a sadist. You know, he found pleasure in causing pain to others and was around by, aroused by his victim's fear. You know, we haven't covered many killers up to this point that engaged in physical torture this way, 
But I think the closest match would be Clifford Olson. You know, when we covered this case, we talked about how he would, for lack of a better phrase, play with his victims and experiment on them um, after they were incapacitated with drugs, but still alive. Um, and then again, after they died as well. Yeah, I, c- I was struggling trying to think of one. I mean, I know that, that that a lot of them do are sadistic, so they get off on the pain, but not to this point. Right, not to this extent. Yeah. It was determined that several of the bodies had been there for around four months, but others had been there much longer. Clearly, Dayton had been doing this for a while now. The police had released public uh, publicly that they believed Dayton was the prime suspect in the Malala murders. One of Dayton's earliest... Excuse me. One of Dayton's earlier assault victims heard about this and contacted the police. She was now working as a prostitute in the Portland area and had seen Jenny Smith the morning Jenny died. She saw her get into a light blue truck. She was shown a picture of Dayton's truck and the witness claimed that was the vehicle that had picked up Jenny. And yes, she would testify to that in court. Other witnesses contacted the police and most were sex workers. One explained about a time a man in a light blue truck picked her up and took her out to the forest the man told her things about his sister molesting him trying to bite off his penis and and that caused him to hate people she said quote he started talking about how he had these fantasies a foot fetish of some sort he started playing with my feet then began rubbing my feet and legs the whole time he kept talking about how he liked feet especially the arches he unzipped his pants took his penis out and began rubbing it against feet my feet that's the end of the quote Dayton then bound her and put her into an, quote, exit swan position. I don't know what that is, but that was what was in the book. Quote, he started to bite on me slightly, just a nibble. He started on my upper back, and as he got closer to my butt, he started to really bite hard. He bit so hard that my butt began to bleed. Then he proceeded down to the back of my legs, and he kept telling me what high tolerance of pain I had. He said it he couldn't believe the amount of pain that I could take. He started to bite on my feet. Then he turned me over. He bit my breasts. He drew blood from biting my nipples. He was really biting, like he was trying to take them off. He never even touched me in the area of my vagina, end quote. So he did this for about three to four hours, um, and then Dayton let her go, but not until he told her, I hope you die. Courtney? So this account is a good demonstration of how a color's behaviors transition from fantasy to low stakes experimentation to higher stakes experimentation before eventually culminating in murder. So with this particular witness, Dayton was increasing the level of his physical violence, but was not yet to the point where he required killing to be sexually satisfied. Hmm. Well, like I said, more and more Portland area prostitutes were contacting the police. They talked about a John who would bite them and cut them. So Dayton's alias typically was Steve, just so you know. If I say Steve, that's who I'm talking about. So their John had mixed screwdrivers out of little bottles of vodka and orange juice during their interactions. All in all, 26 women came forward and had information for the police that they could actually use in a court of law against Dayton Leroy Rogers. The the investigators were able to compile enough evidence to show a pattern of behavior and a clear MO for Dayton. What they could not figure out was why some women he chose to let go and some he chose to murder. Courtney, what do you think his reasoning was? At least two of his victims, including Jenny Smith, had known Dayton previously before he decided to end their lives. The police speculated that he got off on fear. It seemed that those that they interviewed who had shown the least amount of fear were the ones that had the least amount of physical damage and were let go. I think that's actually a good theory. 
So if Dayton's main goal was to elicit fear in his victims in order to get aroused, then he would be trying to get as big of a fear reaction as possible. So if a potential victim was staying relatively calm, not panicking, or, you know, begging him to stop, then the entire encounter would essentially be pretty boring to Dayton. But if he was getting strong responses, then he would get more and more excited and would want that feeling to last as long as possible. This is pretty classic behavioral conditioning. I mean, if you think about a toddler throwing a tantrum, if a parent gives in to their demand or just engages in arguing and fighting about it, then the tantrums will continue and last longer. But if a parent ignores the tantrum behavior and doesn't give in to demands, then the tantrum stops. Well, the police tried to interview Dayton, but he had retained an attorney and refused to speak to the police any further. This decision does deviate a bit from some of our other killers, the ones that want to talk about their accomplishments and brag to the police or whoever it is. Courtney, did we touch on if you thought Dayton was a narcissist? I don't think we've really talked about narcissism, but we have touched on how some traits of schizoid personality disorder are can be similar to NPD. So people with schizoid personality, which is kind of my theory for Dayton, is that that was um, one of his diagnoses, can appear self-centered, uncaring, or aloof. But unlike people with NPD, these behaviors don't come from an inflated self-esteem and needing to be seen as superior to others. In SPD, they come from just a genuine lack of interest in other people. Well, the police started to question sex workers who were incarcerated. Many of them had known Dayton and shared the same story. He would drink his screwdrivers, bind them, torture, and sometimes mutilate them for long periods of time, and then, quote, masturbate frantically throughout the ordeal. They all claimed that he didn't penetrate them vaginally, just the masturbation. Well, some witnesses did claim he would enter them, but ultimately climaxed outside of their body. Some of the witnesses claimed that Dayton was very well endowed and that they were grateful he did not try to have sex or rape them because he was so large. Anyways, I'm trying to point out that there were a lot of witnesses that had encounters with this Steve, which was Dayton's alias on the street. One even survived being shot by Dayton. She had a date with Steve, and when it was over, she asked for the money. And he said, quote, you whore, I'm giving you nothing. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill all you whores. He then shot her, and she woke up in a hospital bed. One of the witnesses claimed that Dayton filleted himself. Yes, I said that. One of them claimed that he had said that he had been raped as a child by a bunch of girls, and that was why he was the way he was towards women. Another claimed that he was bisexual, and she knew of a relationship he had with a man for years, which was later confirmed when police interviewed the man in question, who claimed that Dayton was very kind and not into kinky sex, at least not with him. Courtney, what do you think about all of this? If it's true, then he's got a lot going on inside himself. He seems to hate women. He doesn't really ejaculate in them. He is gentle with men. He's claimed to be very into masturbation and may even fillet himself to accomplish the act. I'm a little at loss here. There is a lot to unpack here. So while there are no official reports that Dayton was sexually abused as a child, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. The conservative religious environment he was raised in put a lot of emphasis on sex being bad and that women were basically wanton seductresses whose purpose in life was to tempt men. So if Dayton was sexually abused by a woman, there would likely be an extreme amount of shame about that, and he probably would have never reported it. 
Additionally, it wasn't said outright, um, but I assume that any sort of homosexuality was also never going to be accepted by his family and their religion. So if Dayton was bisexual or gay, he would not have been able to be open about that. And likely, fantasy and masturbation would have been the only way he could experience sexual gratification for much of his life. So, kind of altogether, it is possible that Dayton had a gentle relationship with a man because he was genuinely attracted to men, and that his relationship with women were violent because of possible trauma and resentment that he was, quote, supposed to want to be with women. What a mess. Dayton's trial started on February 4th, 1988. So this was for the murder of Jennifer Smith. Dayton was pleading self-defense. Well, you know, because a naked woman bleeding from multiple stab wounds in a Denny's parking lot poses a huge threat to a man. Sarcasm. After two weeks of the trial, the jury deliberated for 13 hours before returning a guilty verdict. Aggravated murder. At that time, Oregon had the death penalty. The same jurors had to decide if Dayton would receive it. The three questions they had to answer were, would Dayton pose a threat to society? Was the murder deliberate? And was it in an unreasonable response to the provocation from the victim? The juror's main struggle seemed to be if Dayton was truly an evil person or if he was mentally ill. Did he deserve to be put to death if he was mentally incompetent? They decided against the death penalty because he would not be a threat to society as he would be incarcerated, and therefore he got a life sentence. Okay, anything you want to say about that one? Nope, go ahead. Okay. So that was just for Jenny Smith, the one that was murdered in the parking lot. The detectives were still piecing together the Malala Forest killer case, and that would be a whole different thing. The trial for that started in March of 1989. That trial lasted five weeks. There was so much to go over, so many witnesses. I feel it had to have been painted, you know, he mu it must have been a different story than what was understood at the previous trial. The jury deliberated for only six hours on that case before finding him guilty of aggravated murder and um, guilty on all counts. So there were 13 counts altogether, and six of them were for murder. The jury then had to decide on a punishment in this trial as well. They heard the appointed psychologist's opinion, which was basically that Dayton was only violent under certain circumstances, when he was aroused, drunk, when he was taken over by his foot fetish, foot fetish or bondage fantasies. He only then became violent if he felt like he got screwed over by someone. He chose prostitutes because he thought they were safe and he wouldn't get caught. This psychologist argued that in prison, Dayton wouldn't have access to these things any longer, so he wouldn't be a threat. He did not need to be put to death. However, a different psychologist pointed out that because Dayton engaged in homosexual relationships, he would be a threat to the men in prison. And since there were no women present, men would become his next targets. Courtney, who do you agree with more? So this is a really hard question because I can see validity in both arguments, but I think that the first psychologist was probably correct. Serial killers typically don't change their victim type and rely on their MO and ritualistic behavior during the murders to get that specific feeling they want. Dayton didn't seem to have any of that rage and hatred towards men that he had towards women. So there really is no reason to believe that he would suddenly start killing men because women weren't around. And if we kind of think back to some of like, okay, I'm going to go to Ed Kemper because he's so forthright and how once his mom was out of the picture, he no longer felt like the urge to kill or so he claimed. Right. So if, if Dayton's main rages come from women, 
and whatever feelings they invoke from him and they are no longer around, then that rage may never develop and he wouldn't need to kill anyone else. So, right. Um, and I, and I agree with you. Like I'm not, I can't really think of anyone who changed their victim type of people who've been caught, who knows who's still out there. And And there are those like, um, like Tommy Lynn sells who, well, they don't have didn't a have a victim type. Yeah. They just killed everybody. But he but. clearly had a victim type. Yes. And he clearly had a... Ritual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Okay. So, yeah, I, I think that you're probably right about that. Um, okay. So, on June 7th, 1989, after 17 hours, the jury decided that Dayton Leroy Rogers should be put to death by lethal injection. Per Murderpedia, the jury was comprised of all women. Um, I didn't really see that anywhere else, but I didn't see anything that said it wasn't that. So I thought that was kind of crazy. What do you think? If the jury really was all female, I would have serious questions about Dayton's defense attorney for not challenging the makeup (laughs) of that jury. I thought that was weird. Right? Yeah. You would expect, you know, the defense attorney to want there to probably Mm -hmm. be some men on Mm -hmm. on there. but trial selection. Yeah. But don't get me wrong. I'm glad he was found guilty. Yeah. So... That's not the end of the story for Dayton. So as I said at the beginning of this tale, I only knew about this guy because he came up in the news for resentencing. Dayton would end up being sentenced to death four times. Three times the Oregon Supreme Court would vacate the death sentence and he would get a new trial. The last time he was sentenced to death was on November 16, 2015, and that was overturned in 2021 when the then governor of Oregon, Kate Brown, changed the aggravating factors needed for the death penalty. So everyone on Oregon's death row had their sentences commuted to life without parole in 22, I believe. So Dayton was resentenced in July of this year. And this case is one of the longest and costliest cases in Oregon history. And there are very few, if any, who have had their death sentences commuted so many times. So like altogether, he's been resentenced five times. Courtney? I am just glad that this guy was finally seen as the dangerous man that he is and is spending the rest of his life in prison. I have no doubt that if he somehow had been released, he would have continued killing. Mm -hmm. He really was addicted to murder i was thinking about that when i was writing the script i was like we haven't talked about the addicted to murder the whole reason we chose the name of our podcast (laughs) right i was thinking that same thing with this with dayton specifically um he was so angry it seemed at his chosen population of victims that he just wasn't gonna stop right and so impulsive Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, he was doing stuff in public and he was having difficulty probably because of his schizoid personality disorder that mm-hmm. he may have um, differentiating between reality and not reality and letting his fantasies take over and all those things. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I agree. He was addicted to murder. Um, so that's it for Dayton. It is. Another another Oregon serial killer that's still alive. He's not, I think... Is he at Coffee Creek? I don't know. He's not in the same place that um, Randy Woodfield is. He isn't there. No. He's somewhere else. I I guess there's like six or seven penitentiaries in Oregon. I was looking it up the other day, and I was kind of surprised by how many there were. But we are a really big state. We don't have a huge population, but we have a really big land mass. That's true. Um, Next case is Courtney's case. Want to give us a little blurby? Yes. So I think this might just be a a one and done kind of episode because it is more of a historical case. We're taking you all the way back to California in the 1920s for this one. 
Like depression era time? Like just prior to depression Just prior? Era. Okay. More the, the roaring 20s. Nice. Oh, fun. Mm-hmm. That would have been a fun time, I think. Um, okay, well, Courtney, what do we do when a guy in a light blue pickup offers us a screwdriver made with little vodka bottles? We go nuts, go home, and go to therapy. That's right. Thanks, everybody. Be safe. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.